All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He, <clears throat> do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have your word, that it is your word that nourishes us, strengthens us. It does this by informing us of the realities of who you are, who we are as creatures created in your image, corrupted by sin, and in need of a Savior who has truly paid it all. That through his work on the cross, his substitutionary atonement, we have eternal life by faith alone in him alone. Father, now as we continue our study in this important section of Matthew, the last week of our Lord on the earth, we pray that you would help us to understand that which is being communicated to us and why it's being communicated to us, that we may have a greater appreciation for who our Lord is, and that we may, through these episodes, uh, have a richer understanding of who our Lord is as a person who came into this world to die for us. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and this morning we're going to begin in verse 12. Now on this particular day that we're studying, as dawn came to Jerusalem, I would imagine that the businessmen who had their uh, areas of business, their kiosks down at the Temple Mount, awoke early and busied themselves to get ready for what was one of the most significant days in their business calendar. It was the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan is the day that is set aside in the book of Exodus when people would come to the temple and they would select their sacrificial lamb that would be offered on the 14th of Nisan uh, as the, their, their Passover lamb. Josephus tells us that uh, some a quarter of a million lambs, he says around 267,000 lambs were sacrificed each year at Passover. That's an enormous number. And if one lamb is sacrificed for every 10 people in a family, then that would suggest that there were somewhere around uh, 2.6 million people that would descend upon Jerusalem during uh, Passover week. They would be camped out on all the hills, along all the valleys, all over Jerusalem, crowding the city, staying with friends. And on the 10th of Nisan, representatives from the families would come uh, to select those lambs. They would have to purchase lambs from 
these dealers inside the temple. Uh, they're referred to in the passage as money changers. There was more to it than that. But because many of these people came from distant places, they came from Galilee or they came from the south down around Hebron or Beersheba or down the Negev or even further places in Syria, Cappadocia, uh, Babylon, Egypt, and they would not be able to bring a lamb with them from home, so they would have to purchase the lamb at somewhat inflated prices uh, from one of these dealers in the, uh, in the temple. This was big business, and this was one of the biggest years, uh, biggest times of the year, much like our time from, uh, what is it, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving until Christmas, when many merchants make most of their money for the year is in that, that time frame, and that would be true at this time. We're told by some authorities that if you had uh, the franchise on one of these booths, you might make between two and three million dollars a year just as a result of these these fraudulent uh, practices that they had inside of the temple. So as they awoke that morning, they were looking forward to one of the most lucrative times of the year. Little did they imagine what would transpire. On that day, the 10th of Nisan, we studied last week that something else took place. This day, we're going to see that the temple is cleansed and the significance of that, uh, that for not only that time, but its analogy for us in, in the Christian life. We saw last time that that morning, Jesus and his disciples, along with a multitude, a huge number, it could have been numbered in the thousands, were following him, and they left Jericho early that morning, and then they uh, they walked to Jerusalem. Uh, that morning, they would have ascended uh, what is pictured here from Jericho in the foreground. They would have gone up this road. If you can see this little uh, strip or ribbon of road, they would go up what is called the ascent of Adumim. Adumim is a Hebrew word meaning bloods. And it was the ascent of bloods, not because it was bloody, but because it looked like blood. With the sun coming off of the, of the stone, it looked red. And so that was just the idiom, um, the ascent of the red objects, uh, in a sense. This is a trek that takes you from about 825 feet below sea level at Jericho up to uh, Jerusalem, which is at approximately... 2,600 feet above sea level, so they're going to ascend about 34 to 3,500 feet in the course of uh, 18 miles. And this walk has been uh, taken many times by by people. I've never been in Israel when it's been quite <clears throat> cool enough to try to make this trek. But in Passover, this was took place in early uh, March of that year and or the end of March of that year and so that's a time when it would be relatively cool maybe as cool as 45 degrees or so in the morning so they would have uh, gotten up early that morning and began their walk to Jerusalem which would take them about uh, six to eight hours depending on how many times they rested and how long they rested uh, along the way so this is a long trek it would put them into 
Jerusalem sometime after lunch, sometime in the early afternoon, just to give you an idea of what this particular day uh, looked like. And this ascent, here's a graphic that shows a, a cross-section of the elevation. The Dead Sea is down here at 1,290 feet below sea level, and they have to walk up to Jerusalem, which is 2,600 feet. Off here to the what would be the west, this is the Mediterranean and the coastal plain in Israel. So this cross-section gives you an idea of what this walk uh, looked like and felt like. As they came into uh, uh, the Mount of Olives area, they went off the Jericho Road through Bethany to uh, Beth Page, and Jesus sent two of his disciples to find an unbroken colt to bring to him that he would ride into the city. Now, this wasn't just some idea that Jesus had that I'm tired, I've been walking a long way, I think I'll ride the, the last uh, uh, couple of hundred yards in the city. He is meticulously seeking to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy that was uh, mentioned in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. As Matthew tells us, uh, this is fulfills that prophecy, uh, which states, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is an unbroken animal, and he was writing it to demonstrate his sovereign power as creator over his creation and over uh, over the animals. And so he is coming in also, as we studied last time, on a significant day. If you go back and look at the prophecy of Daniel 9, that is a fulfillment of the timing of Daniel's first 69 weeks or periods of seven. This map here shows the route that they took from Bethany up to Bethpage, and here you're on the, near the crest of the Mount of Olives, and then they would go down and cross the Kidron Valley and then come up into the uh, temple area. Along the way, we saw that Jesus stopped and he wept over the city because of their rejection of him, because their rejection of truth, and he indicates that, that their time for peace and the kingdom would not come and that they would be, it would be postponed and removed. This is important to understand that we are not in the kingdom of God in any way, shape, or form. This has been a matter of great confusion down through church history. Uh, amillennialism, which was a way of uh, interpreting prophecy in the uh, early part of the church age, not in the first couple of hundred years where they were premillennial, which means Christ would return before the millennial kingdom. They were amillennial. That prefix means no literal thousand years, no literal millennium. And the belief under amillennialism is that we are living in a spiritual form of the kingdom. And that concept has led to much abuse because there have been kings and political leaders throughout uh, the period from approximately uh, 300 A.D., up through the early part of the 20th century, who in one form or another perverted that into the idea that they were establishing this kingdom uh, upon the earth. The most recent of which was, of course, Adolf Hitler, who was establishing his, how long was that Third Reich supposed to last? A thousand years. Where do you think he got that number? 
didn't just pop out of say, oh, that's a nice round number. Uh, you know, all of this uh, coming out of the 19th century where you had a post-millennial idea that dominated many things, and that's the idea that first the church is going to bring in the kingdom, and then the Messiah will come at the end of the thousand years post-millennium, that this dominated a lot of political theory. It died, many have said, on the fields of Flanders. That's an allusion to the, the bloody... Uh, fields of the battlefields of World War One. Uh, post-millennial was an optimistic view that things will get better and better, and they discovered that things were getting worse and worse. Post-millennialism got resurrected towards the end of the 70s and is now a much more influential theology. And if you pay attention to what is said by many, many Christians, they talk a lot about the kingdom. It's entered into the uh, everyday idiom of most Christians, we're going to do this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom, and that just tells you that they're a heretic, biblically ignorant, and just involved in a lot of dead works. Because we're not doing anything for the kingdom now, because the kingdom isn't going to come until Jesus returns. We are not in a spiritual form of the kingdom. We are not in a mystery form of the kingdom. We're not in any kind of anything for the kingdom because to king to have a kingdom, you have to have a domain and a king on the throne, and Jesus is on his Father's throne at the right hand of his Father, and he will not be uh, on his throne until he comes in his kingdom uh, Revelation chapter 19, defeating the kings of the earth and then establishing his kingdom. So he announces this, this postponement uh, several times, and he does so in Luke 19.41. We learn on his way down to Jerusalem. And as he comes, and the crowds that have been with him, the multitudes, are laying out palm branches in front of him, and they are singing from Psalm 118.25, and which is Hosanna, which in the Hebrew means, Hoshiana means to save us. It is a call to deliver us and to save us. And they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing that he his coming, this entry is a display of his messianic, uh, credentials and his messianic role. He is almost flaunting this in the face of the religious leaders of his time. And that's what's going to happen over the next four days is just as those Passover lambs that are being chosen on this particular day will be evaluated over the next four days to see if they are truly uh, without spot or blemish and therefore qualified to be a Passover sacrifice, He's going to enter into a series of confrontations with the religious leaders, and the course of those confrontations are going, is going to display that he is the righteous Son of God and that he is indeed who he claims to be, the Messiah of Israel. As I said earlier, it's no mistake that he is entering in on this day. We looked at this prophecy briefly last time that he enters in on... On March the 30th of A.D. 33, this has been calculated by a number of people. This is what people refer to sometimes as Palm Sunday. Now, I'll eventually get into the chronology of this this week, but if Jesus enters in on Sunday, 
then the crucifixion had to occur on Thursday. I'm not against that. I think that's very much a possibility, but it's, it gets very confusing. Palm Sunday is the 10th. And all you have to do is count. That would mean that uh, Monday's the 11th, Tuesday. You know I have trouble with numbers. Tuesday's the 12th, Wednesday's the 13th, and Thursday would be the 14th. So that would call for a Thursday crucifixion. However, there are a number of people who argue that it is was on Monday, that he actually entered in on Monday, and that would be a Friday crucifixion. A lot of debate that goes on over just what day of the week, uh, just what day of the week it was. But the date, based on Dr. Harold Honer's extensive studies on the chronology of the life of Christ, uh, based on prior studies. Uh, that have been done on this Daniel uh, Daniel 9 prophecy, that triumphal entry was the day that ends that first prophetic period in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 9. And the people recognize it. They recognize the timing. They recognize who he is. Now, this isn't all the people. If, if Josephus' numbers are close to correct, you've got a couple of million people that are going to be in Jerusalem by Thursday and Friday, and only a small percentage of them knew who Jesus was and recognized who he was, and they weren't the people who were calling for him to be crucified uh, before Pilate on Friday. It was many of the others, and probably a lot of paid uh, rioters were there as well who were uh, uh, bribed to be there by the uh, Jewish leaders to call out for the for the death of, of uh, Jesus. So those who recognized who he was are quoting from the Psalms. His messianic uh, appeal, his messianic claim is clearly evident. Now what happens is that he is going to enter into the temple. As we see on this map, this shows the road. You probably can't read that. It says to Bethany. You would take that road. That's where the Jericho Road came down the east side uh, of the Temple Mount on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and it passes the Garden of Gethsemane, and then it comes down across the valley of the Kidron and up a slight slope into the Shushan Gate, which is the east gate going into the uh, Temple Mount Precinct, And so we are told by Matthew that then Jesus went into the uh, temple of God and drove out all those who had bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, a couple of things we need to observe carefully here is uh, the terminology. We have the word temple used here, and there are two words in the Greek language that are translated temple. The first is the word heron, and the second is the word naos. Now, the word heron is a broader term. It is a term that includes the entire temple precinct. It includes all the buildings that were on top of the temple mount, includes all of the courtyards, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, uh, the court of the priests. But there is another word that is used in Scripture, and that's the word naos, and that word just describes the center building, the temple itself, the holy place the, involving the two sections, the holy place, the outer area, and the inner area, the holy of holies. The outer place was where the uh, table of showbread was located, the menorah, 
and the uh, altar of incense, and then inside the Holy of Holies was, but not at this time, was the Ark of the Covenant, although there is some debate that perhaps the Ark at this time was hidden. Who knows? We've all heard about the search for uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, may have been hidden, maybe not, but that that was where we had a... There's a flat slab of rock there that is where the Ark of the Covenant rested when it was in the first temple. Now there is an Islamic monument over that rock called the Dome of the Rock. That's the rock. So this is the location of the uh, of the Temple Mount. Now as we see, as we go through Scripture, Scripture makes some important distinctions here. Jesus, when he is cleansing the temple here, as well as the at the beginning of his ministry in John 1, isn't cleansing the naos. He's not going into the building itself. He is cleaning up the outer courtyard area where there are these various abuses. We'll make some application from that in a minute. But just to understand a little bit about the background of the, uh, of the temple, this is a picture of Jerusalem in the time of David. It may surprise you to realize it wasn't very large. It was a small, small place that located on the downward slope below Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the location where Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and to bind him and to offer him as a sacrifice to God. By the time of David, this mountaintop here was owned by a man named Aruna, who, the Jebusite, who is uh, who sells that threshing floor area to David, and then that became the site of the first temple as well as the site of the second temple and is today known as the, as the Temple Mount. So this gives you an idea of what this area looked like. So in the history of the Temple Mount, you have Abraham going there to offer uh, Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice. At the last minute, God stopped him. There was a ram that was caught in the brushes that God provided as a substitute, and Abraham uh, recognized this and gave God the name the Lord. Uh, the Lord provides. The Lord provides a substitute. Here is another uh, depiction of the city of David at the time of Solomon, and you can see at the very top here a building that is constructed and that was the location of the first temple, uh, Solomon's temple. By the time of Christ, the second temple had been expanded by Herod. The first, sort of the first period in the course of the second temple was known as Zerubbabel's temple. And it was somewhat modest compared to Solomon's temple because when they returned from the exile, they didn't have as many resources and as much money, so it was more modest. But Herod, who loved to build, uh, decided that he was going to make the, uh, redo the temple and make it a showpiece in all of the world. And in fact, uh, there was a saying that you did not know what beauty was unless you had seen the temple in Jerusalem. 
It was considered the eighth wonder of the ancient world. It was absolutely magnificent, and it was uh, it was quite uh, quite large. I've got several visuals for you to help you depict this, and these are all drawn to scale. And so you can see how small the people are. Those little black dots are people. And you can see how large the temple was. The temple mount itself covered an area of about 35 acres. And it is surrounded by a wall. This is uh, actually a retaining wall that was built by Herod the Great. And it was all filled in because prior to this, there was still something of a hilltop that you could see that was the top of Mount Moriah. But he filled all of that in and he built this found, this uh, retaining wall in order to support the uh, immense weight of the temple. And when you go to Jerusalem, you can go on the back side of the temple area over here, which is where the western wall is located, and you can take a tour of the what they call the western wall tunnels. And you go down about 40 or 50 feet, and you will see a foundation stone there that I don't have pictured that is about as long as the width of this room, and it is about three to four feet high, and they estimate its weight at around 440 tons. They moved it there. That's because those primitive people 2,000 years ago had a technology that is far superior to ours. We don't know how they did it. Uh, we have some ideas, but they were able to quarry those stones and move them into place, and you can't slide a piece of paper between the, the, in the cracks between the rocks. They fit that perfectly together. But they had to have these large, incredibly large stones there in order to hold the weight of the, uh, of the temple. This structure is enormous. Now, this is from a book that you can get that's put out by Rose Publishing called The Temple, which was written by uh, Randy Price. And it has great visuals in it. And in the opening page, there's this fold-out. And uh, I've got this electronically, but it's just too... It would take four screens in order to show it at at this size. But I'm going to show you the center and then the left side here. And this is looking from, from the east into uh, the temple. This was the outer gate. Inside here you have the uh, court of the women. They could not go any further than that. Then you have the inner gate here. You can barely make out a little bit of something orange there. That's where the, uh, the altar was located. And then they had the lavers there. And this was where the men, and then you had the court of the priests uh, going inside. If you look on the outside... There is a low barrier wall here and a low barrier wall on the right. It's not very high, only a couple of feet high. That marked the border, and no Gentiles could go any closer than that. We'll see that a little more about that in just a minute. Looking to the left of the center structure, this was the area called the Stoa, and it is in that area that these money changers 
would have set up their kiosks, their stalls, where they were selling animals and where they were exchanging money at an exorbitant rate because when people came, they would have to pay their half-shekel tax. And if they came from Egypt or Babylon or Rome or wherever, they would have some other form of money. They wouldn't have shekels, so they would have to exchange the money at a, at a high exchange rate. And so the profiteers were making a tremendous amount of money. Again, you can see this low wall here that separates the court of the Gentiles uh, from the interior area. This is outside the wall. This is looking from the west back towards the temple itself. Uh, This is an area where there were also many other shops, and uh, some of us have walked through the ruins uh, of of those shops, and there perhaps were some of the places where they could also buy uh, a sacrificial animal. But this is not the area where Jesus was, because this would not have been called the temple. The temple would just be, that that word heros just refers to the area that was inside uh, those uh, retaining walls, and then the naos would have referred only to this building uh, building itself. So the language is uh, is specific. Here's another view from the um, southwest corner. And this is the backside of that stoa area. You would enter in through the Hulda gates here. You can still today see the remains of these gates. And you would enter in and go up some stairs. Those stairs are still there, by the way, but now if you go, they're blocked off. If you go up those stairs, you'll end up in the middle of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, which is located there. Again, this is that outside area. This is the remains of those various uh, kiosks and stalls today. This shows you a diagram. You've got the uh, entryway here of the Shushan Gate on the east, the court of the women on the outside. Earlier when we were looking in, we were looking down. We could see the entryway here into uh, the, the temple, the temp- temple area of the priests here. Uh, we're talking more about this area here, the court of the Gentiles, the area of the, of the uh, Stoa. This is just another shot showing you a little bit about this is a uh, picture of this low wall that separated the area from the Gentiles. This was the uh, plaque that was um, located there uh, telling uh, Gentiles to basically, if you go beyond this sign, you're going to die. And then this shows in the temple model that they have at the uh, uh, Israel Museum this shows how low that wall was. It was a couple of feet high, but it gives you a sense of the dimension, how enormous this is. Now, this is from the Stoa area. You can see the number of people here. These were the shops, the money changers. This is the area where the action is taking place, and you're looking out. What I wanted to do with these pictures is to give you a sense of the immensity of this area. This isn't just a, a small area like like any like a church. You know, a lot of people, they think of the temple, they think of their church as, a, as some sort of analogy. This is a huge complex, uh, 35 acres. And Jesus, probably watched by some of his, many of his followers that went with him, Jesus is going to, by himself on the force of his own personality, is going to seize control of this area. That is profound. Jesus is going to take over, and he doesn't face any opposition in doing it. The people, many of the 
uh, priests and rabbis at the, uh, at the time recognized the corruption, and they had tried to do something about it, but they couldn't because there was basically a mafiosa type of situation going on uh, in Israel at the time, and everything that happened on the Temple Mount was controlled by Annas, who had been the high priest from uh, AD 6 until 16, and he was like the godfather. He controlled access. He controlled who got the franchises. He controlled who lost the franchises. He controlled everything. And if you were going to get one of these places, uh, you could possibly make a couple of million dollars. And so you were paying a hefty fee uh, for the privilege. But I want you to get a sense. This is where the action is taking place. It had taken place earlier in his ministry, John chapter 2 refers to the first time that it took place. Now, what was going on here? Annas had been the high priest from 6 to 16, and at this point in time, his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, is the high priest, and Caiaphas was the high priest from A.D. 18 to 36. He's the high priest at the time that, that uh, Jesus was uh, arrested and brought, also brought before him. But to show the power of Annas, Jesus is taken to Annas first before he's taken to Caiaphas because Annas actually controlled everything. Six of his family members, sons and son-in-laws and grandsons, served as high priests in the first century. He ran the show. He was the real, uh, the real power, power base. So he was the one who controlled everything that's going on on the temple. Now, as we look at the, that first verse, tells us that Jesus went into the temple of God and he drove out all those who bought and sold, uh, sold in the temple. That word indicates that, uh, uh, somewhat violent action. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's not throwing a hissy. He's not instigating a riot. He very calmly is walking through this enormous area and he is flipping over their tables. He's tearing down their stalls. This took some time. Let's say he arrives about 1 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He probably spent an hour or two uh, tearing things apart and tearing things down and physically running these people out of the area. Uh, John described what had happened earlier this way in verses uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. This isn't the meek and mild Jesus of your liberal Protestants. Okay, this guy is physically tough, and in his and it's in his humanity. He's not doing this out of his deity. He is doing this out of his humanity. He has a presence of authority and power that flows from his integrity where he meets no opposition. Drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice he doesn't release the doves. I think that's important because those were the sacrifices for the poor people. So he just tells them to take them away. John 2.17, at that point his disciples were putting things together and they remembered uh, from Psalm 69, 9, talking about the Messiah, zeal for your house has consumed me. 
So we look at Matthew 21, 12, and we see what is going on here. This is a cleansing of the outer temple, not the inner temple. The outer temple, not the inner temple. Now, an implication of that is that when you get into the New Testament, we're going to see that that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that our body is the temple of God. The Greek word there is naos. It's not heros. It's that word for the, for the holy of holies and the holy building. And that tells us that, that we are set apart positionally as God's adopted children. We are priests unto God, and we are set apart in a way no other believer in all of history is set apart or will be set apart because we are, uh, we, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit who makes us in the inner man a temple, a dwelling place like the Holy of Holies. That's not what's being cleaned up. What's being cleaned up is what's on the outside. This is a picture and you can remember this, those of you who teach children, teach in prep school, this is a great illustration of the whole importance of cleansing in Scripture. The Old Testament depicts it. If you're going to come into the temple, you have to be cleansed. You have to go through the ritual cleansing. We saw this alluded to in Psalm 118 when these worshipers in this procession are going to enter. Uh, There's this dialogue around Psalm 118, 19, and 20 in there where it's probably the Levitical priests who are saying uh, only those who are righteous can enter in. He's reminding them of the uh, ritual required that only those who are cleansed can enter into the temple to worship God. This is why we emphasize 1 John 1, 9 at the beginning of every class. Only when we have been cleansed of sin are we in right relationship with God and right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is external. It's dealing with the external part, the heros, not the internal part. So we are to be uh, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, through the power of God's Word, cleaning up our lives, as it were, not through our own moral efforts, which is just human good and good works, but through our walk by the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Word of God, works to change us from the inside out. Matthew twenty-one thirteen, Jesus makes the statement, in relation to what he is doing, he says, uh, we have two quotes from the Old Testament. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So what he is doing is he's going back to two Old Testament prophecies or two Old Testament statements, and he is tying them together in what is taking place in, uh, at this time. Isaiah 56, 7 uh, was written at a time when Isaiah uh, was looking forward to, to a, the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian captivity when it would be a temple that was a house of prayer. Uh, he, is, uh, he may even be talking about the future millennial uh, temple in context. He says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. I think this is, this is the... Um, 
uh, millennial kingdom when all the nations will come to worship on the holy mountain. It says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the millennial temple. That's the purpose of the temple relationship with God. Uh, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable, accepted on my altar. For my house of prayer shall be called a house of prayer. But Jesus stops there. He doesn't quote the last phrase. He doesn't say for all nations because he's dealing with Israel here. He's not dealing with the Gentiles at all. And then he uh, quotes from Jeremiah 7.11, which states, has this house, this is a uh, condemnation where Jeremiah is condemning the apostasy of his generation, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, even I, I have seen it, says the Lord. Jesus just lifts out that phrase, a den of thieves. Literally, it means a cave of robbers. If you've been to Israel, there's caves all over the, the country. There's caves everywhere. And these highwaymen, these robbers, would hide out in these caves, sort of like if you know anything about the Old West in American history. We had areas out in Utah and Montana that were called the uh, robber's roost or the hole-in-the-wall. You may have heard of the hole-in-the-wall gang in reference to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, these were places where where these robbers would go and they would hide. And and this this is the idea that you've turned the temple of the Lord into just a place for thieves, a place for thugs and bandits, people who hold up and steal money from those who are coming to uh, to worship the Lord. So the first thing Jesus does is he comes into the temple and he exercises his authority as the Messiah and he cleanses the temple for sin to restore it to a place of worship. This creates a head-on confrontation with the religious leaders. And of course, it, it, it won a lot of friends from all those businessmen who are losing all that money. So it's going to create further uh, hostility from people in Jerusalem. But the next thing he does is he sits down and he begins to minister to the people, again demonstrating his messianic identity. We're told that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, uh, still the uh, heros, the temple, and he healed them. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. This is why you have Jesus healing all through his ministry. It's not healing because... He, he's just going around to all the hospitals and healing people. He is demonstrating his messianic credentials. And Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer. So this is a depiction, again, of the ministry of the Messiah when he comes. You see, what he is doing is he's turning back the effects and the consequences of being in a sinful, corrupt world. That's the role of the Messiah. When Adam sinned, sin entered into the human race and entered into the universe, and the universe became corrupt. Prior to that, there was no sickness, there's no illness, there's no uh, death, physical death whatsoever. But after Adam sins with corruption in the world, there's going to be death, there's going to be disease, there's going to be sickness. All of these horrible things from birth defects to famine to war are all the consequences of sin. 
Jesus is demonstrating as the Messiah, he rolls back the effects of sin. He heals the lame and he gives sight to the blind, demonstrating he is the Messiah. But this really angers the chief priests and scribes. This is uh, one of several groups that are going to come and oppose Jesus. He's going to be opposed by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We'll find scribes mentioned several times. They're mentioned 27 times in Matthew. I could talk for an hour about what I've studied this last week on the scribes, but we have no time to do that. Uh, The scribes were, by this time in Israel's history, the, the scribes were the experts in the law. They were walking Bible encyclopedias. These Tanite scribes that began around 100 B.C. and, and extended their influence until about 200 A.D. Uh, had memorized all of the Old Testament. You could just That's why the chief priests have them along. They're going to engage in conversation with Jesus. He's already uh, uh, made it clear that he knows uh, the Torah, the whole Old Testament, backwards and forwards. So if he says something that stumps them, they can just turn to a scribe and say, uh, well, what does that verse say? And they'll quote it from wherever because they've got the entire Old Testament memorized. Uh, they, you could, you could play a game with them. In fact, they did th- these things. They were so, they were pretty arrogant and proud of what they did. And you could just start a verse and they would end it, pick a verse anywhere in the Old Testament and they, they would know it. Uh, they preserved the text. There were, uh, numerous things they did, but they are, uh, the experts in theology and in the Bible at that, at that time. And so they're going to accompany the chief priests. And the chief priest, part of the job of a priest was, according to Deuteronomy, was that they were to be teachers of the law. So these experts in Torah are going to come to challenge Jesus, and they say, when they see all these wonderful things, all these marvelous things, all these miracles that Jesus did, and what's happening is the children are now picking up the, 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 the chant from Psalm 118. Uh, if the adults won't do it, the children are going to do it. And the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. The second time we've had this reference to Jesus as the son of David in this section, emphasizing their recognition of him as the Messiah. And so they're quoting from Psalm 118.25, Hosanna, mean, Lord, come save us now. And uh, the, the response of the uh, chief priests and scribes is they're indignant, they're angry, they are frustrated, they want to get rid of him, he's, he's tearing down everything that they are doing. And so Jesus confronts them and he says, listen to what the children are saying, just stop, think about it, because you see, he knew, they knew the Old Testament scriptures by heart. Listen to what they're saying. They would should be able to stop, think, relax, and if they're hearing the children quote Psalm 118.25, that whole psalm should come to their mind. And that's being fulfilled before their very eyes. And then Jesus says, as he has on numerous occasions in, in, in Matthew and the other Gospels, he says to those who have memorized the Scripture, haven't you read this? It's just a slap in the face. See, what happened with the scribes at this time is they're copying the Scripture. It would take a scribe a year to make a copy of the Torah. They're just not writing it out. Each letter would be outlined in black, and then they would fill the letter in. 
And as they are writing each letter with great precision and deliberation, they would sing that word in a song. They would sing the whole verse in a, in a song, in a chat, uh, a chant. They, they've memorized this. And so these scribes know the scriptures inside and out, backwards and forwards, and they have probably, most of these men who were with them had copied the Torah maybe 50 or 100 times. They knew it so well. So Jesus says, haven't you read this? And then he quotes from Psalm 8, 1 and 2, verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. The idea is that the religious leaders have completely failed, so God is going to raise up a witness from the children that they will declare the truth. And so he confronts them with their apostasy and their ignorance of Scripture, and then he leaves, verse 17. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Jesus has made a very clear statement to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Messiah is here. You have one of two options. Accept me as the Messiah or reject me as the Messiah. And that's the question for every person, is to trust in Christ as Savior or not. And that's the most important issue anybody will ever address. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon this event, this cleansing of the temple, and understand its application for us as believers in terms of confession of sin. But we also recognize that that Jesus makes a claim that despite what many liberals and others say about Jesus in our world, that he never claimed to be God, that he never made these claims, he clearly did. And he makes a claim that he is God, he is the creator of the universe, he has authority over everything in the universe because he is fully God, and that this is a claim every person needs to confront. Either reject him and be hostile to the truth, or accept him as the one who has come and has died for our sins, paid that penalty, that we can have eternal life not by being good in and of ourselves, but by simply trusting in him, receiving his righteousness as ours, and being declared justified because of what we have in him. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening today that they would recognize their need to be saved, to trust in Christ as Savior, and they would believe and accept him as the Savior who died on the cross for their sins, was buried on the third day, and rose from the dead. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these truths, that we may be able to communicate them to others, and that we may have a desire to see others Uh, understand and respond to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.